Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery again. Thanks for downloading this episode. Last week, the China History Podcast featured a little overview of the I Ching. After I finished that one, I looked at my long list of topics, and after a little fulmination, I settled on Adam Schall von Bell, the German Jesuit missionary who's featured in Jonathan D. Spence's book, To Change China. This is the book that first taught me about Sir Robert Hart. It's all about Westerners who went to China and made a difference in some way. So I started reading up on Shawl, and I realized there's no way to do this without bringing Matteo Ricci in. And you also can't talk about Shawl without mentioning Ferdinand Verbeest. So today's podcast is about all three and their collective contributions, not only to building Christianity in China, but also in serving as role models for future generations of Westerners who embrace China, learned the language, and acted in the capacity of cultural bridges between the West and China. I didn't want to do a podcast on the Jesuit mission in China because that was a little bit too big of a task to take on. Looking at these three superstars will most def give you the main idea about the struggles of the Jesuits and their sweet victories. There are Matteo Ricci and Adam Schall von Bell, Catholic high schools and places of higher learning all around the Roman Catholic world. Their legacy cannot be underestimated. All the sinologists of great and near-great repute, Wade and Giles, James Legg, Roderick McFarquhar, Joseph Needham, Jacques Gernet, Richard Wilhelm, who we discussed in the I Ching episode last time, John King Fairbank, Rui Alley, Simon Lays, John DeFrancis, Perry Link, Frederick Mote, Orville Schell, Jonathan Spence, Frederick Wakeman. The list goes on. All these 19th and 20th century sinologists, all celebrated in their day, and all of them made such great contributions that we, who study China today, are all the direct beneficiaries but all these China experts, every one of them, you know, who left their mark for the generations that followed, whose shoulders did they stand on? You know, when I began studying Mandarin, just like almost everyone, at least in the USA, I had the Beginning Chinese Readers, Part 1 and 2 by John DeFrancis. I had that to get me over the initial hump. And DeFrancis, he was the direct beneficiary of all the work done by Way, Giles, and Leg. But you know, there was a time when there weren't any Chinese dictionaries, primers, or horn books, or anything for that matter. Someone had to start at the beginning of the beginning and unlock the complexity of this great language by sheer brute force and determination. That's one of the things the three men who we look at today did. All three of them, most of all Matteo Ricci, they left behind a body of work that later China scholars would learn from, and over the centuries, layer by layer, the scholarship got better and better, and now, here we are today in the 21st century, the tools that are at our disposal on our smartphones, computers, and computer tablets just boggle the mind. Ontologically speaking, we might have to begin our story with uh, Michel Ruggieri. I don't know whose shoulders he stood on when he became one of the first Europeans to master the language. He was born in 1543, down there at the boot of Italia in Renaissance Italy. His early years were 
contemporary with Michelangelo's last years. Michelangelo, of course, living to the ripe old age of 89 in the 16th century, no less. That ought to be considered one of his greatest accomplishments. Ruggieri's Chinese name was Luo Mingjian. All of these guys, all these Jesuits who went to China, they all sort of followed a similar regimen as Ruggieri. He became a Jesuit priest in 1572. He was one of the co-founders of the Jesuit mission to China. It all began with him. History books call Michel Ruggieri the first Western sinologist. I know not whose shoulders he might have stood on or who was there to help him out, but for all intents and purposes, we could call him the first. He did many things that were great, but chief among them was perhaps his co-authorship of the first Portuguese-Chinese dictionary. Ruggieri, together with Matteo Ricci and others, left the port of Lisbon for China. All these voyages taken by these Jesuits, they all departed from Lisbon. The Reformation was in full swing, and millions had been turning their back on the Catholic faith they were born into. Some serious missionary work had to be carried out to swell the devastated ranks of the Catholic faith. That's what the China mission was all about. But our story today is about how they went about achieving this objective. It began with Ruggieri, who traveled a familiar path, Lisbon to the Malabar coast of India, which in those 16th century days was a Portuguese stronghold. There is where Ruggieri began his Chinese studies. Within six months, he was proficient enough to start hearing confession in Chinese. In the summer of 1579, he then traveled to Macau. Macau had been given to the Portuguese a mere 20 years before, and this is where they had their base and where much of the earliest scholarship occurred. Knowing that he was blazing a trail that others would follow, Ruggieri set up St. Martin's House in Macau. This school would later serve as an institution for learning the Chinese language and culture. Both Ruggieri and Ricci continued their mastery of the language in Macau, all the while itching to get into the Chinese heartland to go do God's work. They knew that in Macau they were merely on the periphery. They had already saturated Macau, a tiny enclave. The big game was out yonder. Ruggieri, like Ricci, Scholl von Bell, and Verbiest, who followed him, was a natural-born salesman. Every ounce of success they enjoyed, and there was plenty of tragedy too, was due to their excellent character and the sincerity with which they respected and studied Chinese culture and language. They didn't defend. They didn't do the hard sell. These guys were cool and easygoing, and they told their Chinese hosts they were there to learn and gain the trust of the Chinese. Ruggieri was the first to begin straying from Macau and heading into the heart of Guangdong province. He slowly began to make his way further and further north into the province, taking advantage of his fluency in the language and the kindness and respect he was showed wherever he went. He began to show up in Guangzhou and Qing. He did a lot of PR work, and once he gained the acceptance of all those government officials, he was given permission to set up a permanent mission in Qing. The Jesuits moved into their new digs in 1583, and they were off and running. 
The following year, Ruggieri published a practical Chinese catechism. This simple work proved extremely effective in converting the locals and giving them an idea what Christianity was all about. From 1583 to 1588, Ruggieri, with the help of Ricci, collaborated on a Portuguese-English dictionary, the first ever Chinese dictionary translated using the Latin alphabet. Once you had this, a Chinese-Portuguese dictionary, it became like a Rosetta Stone that could unlock the language for any other European language. But as a tool for the earliest students of Mandarin in the 16th century, it was invaluable. There's nothing like a dictionary to grease the wheels of progress for Chinese language study. As a quick sidebar, this work was somehow lost to posterity, but one day in 1934 it was rediscovered and then later published in 2001. In 1588, Ruggieri took it upon himself to take a trip back to Rome to appeal to the Pope to get more serious about this China mission and to send some sort of official embassy to Beijing to appeal to the emperor, who in this case was none other than the long-reigning and ultra-reclusive Wanli Emperor. He's one of the Ming Dynasty emperors. We looked at him and his antics in CHP episode 34. So basically our story today will straddle the end of the Ming and the beginning of the Qing. Four emperors are mainly involved. The two Ming emperors, Wanli and Chongzhen, and the first two Qing emperors, not including Nirhachi, that is, the Xunzhi emperor and his son, the magnificent Kangxi. These guys are all discussed in the Dynasty Overview podcast numbers 34 and 35. So Ruggieri's trip back to Italia was ill-fated. He arrived in 1589 and in quick succession... Pope Sixtus V dies, then Urban VII lasts a year, then Gregory XIV, he doesn't last too long, same with Innocent IX. So from the time Ruggieri landed in Italy in 1589 and was able to start making his appeals to the Holy See, until the time he himself died in 1607 in Salerno, Italy, you had eight popes. So these nine years were terribly unstable, and Ruggieri was unable to get anyone to focus on this and see the big picture. And then Ruggieri, already in his late 50s, early 60s, which is old by the standards of the day, he got sick and then any thoughts of going back to China were now out of the question. So when he left in November 1588, he was never to return again, and there was still so much to do. Fortunately, there was still Matteo Ricci, known also by his Chinese name, Lima, it was Ricci who had to step into Ruggieri's big shoes. Ricci fortunately knew exactly what to do. He had been in China long enough to know, like everyone else in the world, they had their own little particular sensibilities and ways of doing things and looking at things. He knew he had to tiptoe around all these things and make sure not to set off any alarm bells that might reflect poorly on their overall mission. First of all, they had to lay low about the real purpose they were there. To have gone out on a street corner and preach like the Reverend Billy Graham would have been suicidal to their mission. And to inform their Chinese hosts that they were there to preach and proselytize, that wouldn't have gone over well either. 
Ricci led the Chinese on to believe that he and his fellow missionaries were men of God who had heard of the greatness and perfection of the Chinese ways of living and Chinese government, and they were merely there to study and learn and hopefully live out their days in this most perfect of places. Ricci knew the Chinese attitude up till now had been, there's nothing these Europeans seem to have that we find useful or necessary. For that reason, full-scale two-way trade had hardly developed like it did regionally in Asia, like you know, during Zheng He's times. And of course, for time immemorial, trade had been carried out along the Silk Roads. But up till Ricci's time, Europe still hadn't been able to find any demand for their products. Louis Vuitton wouldn't open up his first factory till 1854. So for the Jesuits to march right in and say they have this, you know, new, great religion that China should embrace and it'll get you into heaven and everything, I mean, no way. This wasn't the way to do it. That would have been horrifically presumptuous and counterproductive to the max. Ricci, if nothing else, was subtle to the extreme. For example, hanging on a wall inside the mission house in Jiaoqing, which uh, Jiaoqing today is about a two-hour car ride east of Guangzhou, there was a very conspicuous painting of the Blessed Virgin with the infant Jesus. It was impossible to enter the mission house and not see this painting hanging there. And of course, you know, curiosity got the best of whichever officials or whoever that was that called on the Jesuits. And they'd inquire about the painting and ask, you know, who the uh, woman and child was. You know, and Ricci would say, oh, you know, funny you ask, you know, this infant child, you know, and so on and so forth. And this is how he did it, always in roundabout subtle ways. The Chinese often had no idea Ricci was working on them. Matteo Ricci and the Jesuits based in Jiaoqing, they had one other thing that endeared themselves to the locals. Their greatest asset, besides their character and a great amount of patience, was all the scientific and mathematical knowledge contained in their heads. Also of great interest were these little scientific instruments, maps, and books, and a myriad of mechanical curiosities that just delighted the Chinese. So trying to draw the locals in and gain their trust was not that hard once they got settled. The local officials, who of course were all educated Confucian scholar elites of their day, they knew a good thing when they saw it. And they couldn't get enough of these clocks, musical instruments, oil paintings, prints. They were blown away by the great leather-bound books and the cosmological diagrams, geographic charts, and architectural works they contained. Something they brought with on the voyage to China that was enthusiastically embraced were maps and charts of the world. The 16th century Chinese had never seen these. They knew not what was out there still. Now, this is all 150 years after Zheng He's voyages, and this goes against everything that Gavin Menzies says. But when Ricci presented these works... The Chinese of the day still considered their empire to be the center of the world. So these maps were real eye-openers. Like he did with almost everything he brought with him, Ricci made a copy of this world map and translated the Latin into Chinese characters. So this gave the Chinese a first look at this so-called 10,000 countries map. A one guo tu, that's how they called the whole world. They said it was 10,000 countries. The end result to all of this was that the locals were beginning to warm to the Jesuits. 
especially Matteo Ricci, who so completely and sincerely embraced the Chinese life, later on dressing and living like any Confucian Mandarin you might meet on the street. He drew them in with his unique personality, his sheer mastery of Chinese culture, and all the great works. And, of course, the wisdom he brought from a faraway land and which he gave to them so freely. He was the first European to master classical Chinese as well as Chinese writing. Can you imagine today where everything in science and technology is patented and protected six ways to Sunday? Think about that for a second. These Jesuit priests freely gave to their counterparts in China everything that the Renaissance had yielded to date. Nothing was held back due to national security interests or, you know, to protect trade. They handed it right over with humility and complete willingness. That's how they got everyone to warm up to them. And the system worked. He gained their trust and their respect. He didn't give them the hard sell. And because of his thorough knowledge of the Confucian texts, Ricci was especially good at always drawing these comparisons between the Bible and the Chinese classics. This is how he time and again used his mastery of the classics to connect with the Chinese he came in contact with. He did do one thing, though, that was going to put him in a little hot water. Ricci knew that his success in achieving the church's objective of spreading the faith in China was an uphill battle. Ricci was well aware of the values, sensibilities, and Chinese way of looking at things. So he sort of bent the rules a little, and wherever possible, he used his own judgment and, you know, big-picture viewpoint. When the people back in Rome got wind of this, it's going to cause quite a bit of controversy. The competitors to the Jesuits were the Dominicans, Franciscans, and Augustinians. And none of these guys had any intention of deviating from the accepted Catholic liturgy. They went in and attempted to convert the Chinese using the same manual used in the New World with native peoples who, though sophisticated, were hardly as advanced as the Chinese. So they were very unsuccessful. They made a big stink about the way Ricci and later Shaul von Bell and Verbeest were all going native and carrying out their mission in the most unorthodox of manners. I'll speak more later about this head-on collision that ultimately happened and what the consequences were. One of the problems the Jesuits and later all Christian movements in China faced was that from time to time, some official would rise to power somewhere in the food chain in China, and this official or Mandarin would be openly hostile to Christianity or to the Europeans in general. These hostile officials, depending on their connections and their ability to wield power, were always causing all kinds of setbacks for the missionary movement. One such setback hit Ricci in August of 1589. Local Mandarins who had an axe to grind with the Jesuits had them forcibly evicted from their safe house in Chaoqing. Ricci and his Jesuit brothers, they ended up in Shaoguan, which then was called Shaozhou. This is about a four-hour car ride north of Chaoqing. Not that Ricci had any wheels back then. There in Shaoguan, Ricci adopted the lifestyle of the Chinese gentleman literatus. He busied himself with a translation of the four books, the Si Shu. These were the Confucian classics that formed the core of the system. The Great Learning, Doctrine of the Mean, the Analects, and the Mengshis. Da Xie, Zhong Yong, Lun Yu, and the Mengzi. 
In July 1592, there were more headaches for Ricci when his residence in Xiaoguan was attacked and he was injured, though not mortally. Since antiquity, China has led the world in constructing the most intricate and elaborate timekeeping and astronomical devices. So I wanted to tell you about one luxury watch brand, Atelier Wen. They demonstrate high-quality Chinese design and craftsmanship in a single timepiece. And their watches celebrate Chinese culture and craftsmanship. Atelier Wen works with China's best designers and craftsmen of today to bring their collection of beautiful luxury watches proudly made in China. Atelier Wen's perception watch model draws from the exquisite geometries found in traditional Chinese architecture. Each dial is individually hand-cut by China's only Guoxie master craftsman, Cheng Yutsai, who engineered his rose engine machine himself. Due to its complexity, it takes a master craftsman around eight hours to cut one dial. And there were no guilloche machines in China before, and Master Chung had to figure out how to build one without access to any Western prototypes or drawings. Check out AtelierWen.com to view their collections and to learn more about Chinese watchmaking. You can mention the CHP at checkout to let them know we sent you. That's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-W-E-N dot com to see their impressive collections. The Atelier Wen Perception Watch will make a special gift for yourself or for someone passionate about fine, unique watches. In 1595, Ricci tried and failed to open up a mission in Nanjing, but he didn't go away empty-handed. He did get the go-ahead to open up a permanent mission and a church in Nanchang in Jiangxi province. And two years later, the powers that be in Rome formally appointed Ricci as the head of the China mission. But Beijing remained the holy grail, so to speak, as far as how Ricci looked at everything. Making a beachhead in the capital was going to be the key to their success or failure. He knew after so much trial and error that the only way they were going to succeed was by planting roots in Beijing and working from the top down to spread Christ's word. And so he set his sights on Beijing and waited for his chance. His first attempt in 1598 met with failure, but he caught a break when the political climate in Nanjing took a turn in favor of the Jesuits and they were allowed into Nanjing. 1598 was also the year the revised Portuguese-Chinese dictionary came out. This one with tones and syllables printed. Unfortunately, this work has been lost to posterity. It was invaluable in its day and provided no small amount of assistance to all those students of Mandarin who followed in Matteo Ricci's wake. Already the dictionaries were getting better. Now, all along, while this is all happening in the 1590s, Ricci is publishing one treatise and scholarly work after another. The Chinese scientists, astronomers, mathematicians of the day, if they didn't hate him and feel threatened by him, they were to a man in complete awe of Ricci's knowledge. Finally, in May, the year 1600, Ricci's dream comes true, and the Wanli Emperor extends an invitation to him to come to Beijing. Now, Ricci never met the emperor in person. That would have been against protocol. But they carried on a relationship nonetheless through their proxies. Ricci and his entourage arrived in Beijing in January of 1601. I can only imagine how freezing cold it must have been when their travel-weary wagon train rolled into town. 
Like the natural-born salesman that he was, Matteo Ricci reached into his bag of tricks and presented the emperor with all his greatest mechanical devices, pieces of art, curiosities of all kind, and of course, the famous mechanically intricate European clocks that always broke the ice at parties. But the topper of all toppers that the Wanli Emperor got the greatest kick out of was a map of the world. It was his first time to see China's geographic location in relation to all the states who paid tribute at one time or another and to see who else was out there. When Zhang Qian came back in 126 BC and proclaimed to the Emperor Han Wu Di that China wasn't the only big guy under heaven, he didn't come back with a map. Now, for the first time, a Chinese emperor got to cop a gander at a map of the world that showed China's approximate geographic position in the world. Now, the top men of science in China all resided in Beijing, and they worked for the emperor. When Ricci mingled with these learned men in China, he displayed his mastery of cosmology, mathematics, astronomy, geometry, cartography, mechanics, you name it. It was Ricci who brought trigonometry to China, and from this, the Chinese benefited immensely. His reputation, of course, preceded him, but seeing it for the first time, it created quite a stir in the Chinese academic community. And Ricci proceeded to use an effective combination of this personal skill set and the act of freely passing on knowledge to ready and eager minds as his way of penetrating the bubble and converting, just as he had hoped, from the top down. Ricci labored for the rest of his days in China in translating Christian texts and writing simple and effective works that made Christianity more accessible to the Chinese. This was especially true of his work, the Tianzhu Shilu, the True Doctrine of God. This simple and elegant work, a Chinese translation of a work begun by Ruggieri, gave the Chinese a real catechism that was written in such a way that it wouldn't repulse or turn them away. It plainly taught about the existence and the unity of God, the creation and the immortality of the soul, which is rewarded or punished in the afterlife. Ricci was particularly effective in supporting his words by drawing parallels from the Chinese classics. It became a sort of missionary handbook for a long time. As one of the stories go, when the Kangxi Emperor read this book in 1692, this was what opened up his mind and made him so tolerant of the Jesuits. And Kangxi's grandson, the Qianlong Emperor, although history has branded him a kind of a persecutor of the Christians, he kept this book in his personal library. So things were looking up for Matteo Ricci. He had to bend the rules a lot and did his best to keep his detractors at bay, but nobody could call him a slouch. He already had permanent missions in Beijing, Nanjing, Nanchang, Shaoguan, and in 1608, they received permission to open a mission in Shanghai. He had a beautiful church in Beijing, the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception, still there today, but you know, rebuilt, of course. The Jesuits really enjoyed a great leap forward with the conversion of Li Yingshi, Li Paul. He was a renowned military leader of his day and a well-respected feng shui and I Ching expert. He came over to the Catholic side and became a zealous Christian. Matteo Ricci thought he knew all the tricks, but it was Li Yingshi who gave Ricci all the tricks of the trade as far as how to make a connection with the locals. 
his advice, and the industry of his labors to preach the word resulted in a great influx of local Chinese looking to be baptized. Now, part of the deal back in those days, if you were anyone like Li Yingshi, you had quite a lot of books, many of which were forbidden in Catholicism. So in order to show your commitment and your sincerity, you would symbolically burn all these prized and precious books from your library. The good Lord only granted Matteo Ricci 57 years on this earth, and he died in Beijing on May 11, 1610. 27 years he had spent working for the Jesuit mission in China, although there were many others like Matteo Ricci who followed him. It is his name, most of all, that we remember. The rules back then said all foreigners had to be buried in Macau and couldn't be buried in China, but in consideration of Matteo Ricci's unprecedented contribution to astronomy, the Chinese calendar, mathematics, cartography, and for the whole kit and caboodle of the body of knowledge he handed to his Chinese hosts on a silver platter, in Chinese, the Wanli Emperor selected a Buddhist temple nearby as Ricci's burial ground. This today is Jialan Cemetery in the Xicheng district of Beijing, the oldest Christian cemetery in China. The three subjects of today's podcast are all buried there, well, sort of, where once 60 other prominent clergy, 46 foreign missionaries, and 14 Chinese priests are also buried. Ricci's journals were sent back to Rome, where they were translated into many languages, and proved to be an invaluable source of information about China. One of the things Ricci was able to confirm beyond a shadow of a doubt to his fellow Europeans was that the mythical cafe of Marco Polo's travels was in fact one and the same as China. Up until then, this was not known for certain. The next one to rise to the occasion was the German Johann Adam Schall von Bell, known more popularly as Adam Schall. His Chinese name was Tang Ruowang. He was born near Cologne on May 1st, 1592, a time when Ricci was busy in Shaoguan working on his translations of the four books. He went through a similar regimen as Ricci before the Society of Jesus elders recognized his mastery of mathematics and astronomy, and they decided he was most suitable to be sent to China. Schall arrived in Macau together with another great Jesuit scholar-priest, Johann Schreck, in 1619. Ricci had been dead for nine years already. When Shawl arrived in Macau, it was a period when the Christians were again in the doghouse. Persecutions beginning in 1616 forced Shawl von Bell and all other Jesuits to remain in Macau. So it was there in Macau that Shawl and Schreck boned up on their Chinese and the sciences. The Jesuits turned a victory against the Dutch into an opportunity. The cannon technology they used was instrumental in defeating the invading Dutch who were intent on seizing Macau, and this got the attention of the emperor. He was really feeling the heat from the Manchus and was interested to see what these European cannon could do to help him keep the Manchus at bay. Shaw and his team took the trip to Beijing, and wouldn't you know it, the minister up there, who was the most hostile of them all, had just been dismissed. Shaw was cut from the same cloth as Ricci. He adopted all Ricci's ways as far as dress and how he composed himself in front of the Chinese. He read and mastered all the classics. Like Ricci, 
He knew how to work a crowd and network something fierce. Shrek's area of specialty were the life sciences, medicine, botany, biology. He was renowned all over Europe for his work, not only for this, but also for his amazing linguistic abilities. He made his way to China, going first to Hangzhou and then on to Beijing, where he worked on the Chinese calendar. When he died in 1630, Shaw was called in to take over Shrek's work on this all-important Chinese calendar. The Chinese calendar was intricately tied into the whole legitimacy of not only the emperor, but the dynasty as well. So getting it right and exact was all important. It wasn't enough to get close. The calendar needed to be precise. And over time, this is exactly what Schall von Bell did for the imperial court. Using his smarts, he calculated an exact calendar that showed the position of the stars for each day, and he constructed a stellar hemisphere. Knowing this was just as important to the Qing dynasty court as it was to the Ming. You see, Schall's specialty was astronomy. The magnitude of his knowledge of astronomy and the way he freely dispensed with this knowledge endeared himself to the scholarly elites of the Ming court. It was his entire grasp of astronomy and how he applied this to the work in perfecting the Chinese calendar that held him in the highest esteem. On June 24, 1629, he predicted a solar eclipse even more accurately than his Chinese counterparts. For this... Shaw was then put in charge of the project of calendar reform. He was the top guy. While he busied himself with this all-important task, he worked on producing maps, astrolabes, and all kind of other scientific instruments. He was even given permission to build an observatory within the Forbidden City compound. Things were looking up. The Jesuits were on a roll. In January 1639, the Chongchun Emperor presented a tablet to Adam Shaw that said, I, the Emperor, praise and protect the teaching from heaven, which is what they called it back then. Well, 1639, as anyone who already listened to CHP episode 34 can tell you, was five years away from the end of the Ming Dynasty. So these weren't the best of times. In 1644, the Ming fell and in came the Manchus, who, thankfully for the Jesuits, were quite tolerant of them and their teachings. The Jesuits were to have a good run with the Manchu Qing rulers until the powers in Rome decided to shoot themselves in the foot and the whole shebang in China came crashing down. But right now, things were great. Shaw was made the director of the Board of Astronomers, the Qin Tianqian, and then in 1648 he became supervisor of the Jesuit residence in Beijing, the infant emperor Xunzhi, upon reaching the age of 13, began a close friendship with Shaw. Despite Shaw's subtle attempts, the Xunzhi emperor never became a Christian. But the friendship between Shaw and the emperor allowed for smooth sailing for the cause of Christianity in China. Many a time when things looked dire, Shaw's closeness to the emperor saved many Christians and missionaries. In 1658, Shaw was made a Mandarin of the first class. But, as it happened, time and again, once everything started to look like nothing could possibly stop them, the Xunzhi Emperor dies young in 1661 at the age of 23. Incidentally, it was Shaw who had advised the Emperor Xunzhi that the best pick for a successor was probably his six-year-old son, who 
we would later know as the Kangxi Emperor. This was the golden time for the Jesuits in China. Kangxi was a great supporter of the Jesuits in China and was most tolerant of them, at least for a while. Things got pretty dicey for the Jesuits as they fell victim to, you know, the whole gamut of court politics and factional backbiting. Between 1659 and 1664, the Jesuits at court were under a two-prong attack from not only the Chinese scientist faction who probably resented their presence, and on top of this, they were also feeling a great amount of heat from the conservative Jesuits who argued that Shaw was going way too far with the way he you know, carried out the whole enculturation of the faith. So the Jesuits always had to be looking over their shoulder. The Jesuit fathers in Europe, they knew that Shaw was too critical to the success of the mission. So for the time being, they left him alone. Finally, when the detractors of the Jesuits at court felt the time was right, they went on the attack. Shawl, as well as his fellow missionary scientists, were tried and convicted in 1661 of trumped-up charges that said because of their astronomical miscalculations regarding an auspicious day for the burial of the emperor's son, it ultimately led to the death of the emperor's consort. Pretty serious charges. The bad guy here was a man named Yang Guangxian. Yang had a rocky career, but had somehow managed to make lemonade out of the lemons life threw at him. He worked his way up the ladder until he was able to take control of the Bureau of Astronomy. Now, he was more of a poser and a troublemaking meddler than a scientist. Nonetheless, he was able to cause the Jesuits a great amount of suffering and hardship once the Xunzhi Emperor had passed in 1661. The young Kangxi emperor had not yet reached his majority and was ruled by four regents. We discussed this all in CHP episode 35, Qing Dynasty Part 1. The Jesuits were all thrown into a prison and for two months endured no small amount of cruelty, torture, hardship, for they were sentenced to death by strangulation in 1665. This Punishment was considered too light a sentence considering the severity of the crimes. Yang Guangxian's intense dislike for these men of God knew no bounds. He made a big deal about the sentence, and so instead it was changed to death by slicing. Then, wouldn't you know it, divine intervention perhaps, three disasters happen in quick succession. There was this terrible earthquake on April 16, 1665, followed by a brilliant meteor that was observed streaking across the sky, followed by a mysterious fire in the Forbidden City that burned down the site that was chosen for the execution. And with that, the Jesuits were all released from prison, but exiled to Guangzhou and then to Macau. But Shaw didn't fare well in prison and was mortally ill by this time. He later died in Beijing, May 15, 1665. In 1669, Kangxi came into his majority, and upon learning that the calendar still had some miscalculations in it, called for a contest to once and for all settle this matter of who was more accurate, the Western astronomers and scientists or China's own. Therefore, the emperor called for a public competition to settle this once and for all. The contest was to be held in Beijing, and the two sides were given three problems to solve. First, 
They had to predict the length of a shadow cast by a type of a sundial of a given height at noon exactly on a given day. Next, they had to figure out the absolute and relative positions of the sun and planets on a given date. Last, they had to predict the exact time, not the approximate time, of a lunar eclipse. And the Kangxi Emperor said, let heaven be the judge of this one. Now, let's introduce the third person, Ferdinand Verbeest. He was born October 9th, John Lennon's birthday, but in 1623. He was, 30, he was 31 years younger than Schall. Ricci was Italian, Schall was German, and Verbeest was Flemish, born not too far away from Flanders. Like Schall, he was a mathematician and astronomer extraordinaire. Just as Schall was friends with the Schwinger Emperor, Verbeest enjoyed such a friendship with Kangxi. In fact, he served as a teacher to the emperor, giving him lessons in geometry, philosophy, and music. He was known in China as Nan Huairen. Unlike Ricci and Schall, who welcomed the chance to go to the Far East, Verbeest, he had his sights set on the New World, where the Spanish were thriving in their mission to convert the natives. He left Lisbon in 1658, arriving in Macau in 1659 in the midst of all the hardships the Jesuits were experiencing in Beijing at the hands of Yang Guangxian. His first posting was up in Shanxi province, but in 1660 he was called down to Beijing to aid Adam Shaw in his hour of need during the trial. Shaw had suffered a stroke, so he was severely debilitated and could hardly defend himself against the onslaught of the Chinese led by Yang Guangxian. Verbeest spoke for Shawl at the trial and later carried out the calculations that would answer the three challenges presented by Emperor Kangxi. Verbeest had a major ace up his sleeve that Yang Guangxian didn't know about. See, remember, 17th century Europe produced an explosion of new data, thanks to the work of a few guys named Galileo, Johannes Kepler, and Tycho Brahe. Well, that's how my astronomy teacher in college pronounced it. Most of you probably remember these names and the collective contributions they made in the 17th century to not only the telescope, but to mathematics and astronomy as well. Verbeest was holding the latest charts and astronomical tables that Kepler had come up with. He also had the aid of the latest telescopes produced by Tycho Bray. It turned out to be a turkey shoot, and Yang Guangxian was exposed and sentenced to the same punishment originally meted out to the Jesuits, and this was later commuted to life in exile, and Yang Guangxian died shortly thereafter. Verbeest was reinstalled as head of the mathematical board and director of the observatory. He was able to compile an exact and correct calendar to the Kangxi Emperor, and he suggested that the present calendar that had been fudged for so many years needed to have one month taken out and then some minor adjustments, and it would be fine. I have to say again, the calendar was intricately tied into the whole matter of the emperor's legitimacy. It controlled all the rites, rituals, and just about everything that happened in the imperial palace. Once Yang Guangxian was done away with and the Jesuits were all brought back from disgrace, a golden period began for the Jesuits' mission in China. The Mandarin and Manchu-speaking Verbeest became close with Kangxi, the emperor gave Verbeest carte blanche to preach anywhere the missionaries wanted. Throughout the 1660s, 70s, and 80s, Verbeest was a veritable 
beehive of activity, inventing all kinds of mechanical devices, such as the first steam-powered car. In the manufacture of weapons of war, like cannons, he also made great contributions to the Qing court. He did a whole bunch of things, like composing a table that would predict all solar and lunar eclipses for the next 2,000 years. Thanks to the technology of the day and the state of mathematics, this wasn't that difficult to do anymore. He continued to design one astronomical instrument after another and proved to be a direct channel for all that the Renaissance in Europe had to offer. In 1668, he successfully convinced the emperor to grant a complete and total rehabilitation of the late Adam Schall. Schall was later interred next to Matteo Ricci in Jalan Cemetery in Beijing. Ferdinand Verbeese died shortly after being thrown from a horse. He was buried March 11, 1668, alongside Matteo Ricci and Adam Schall von Bell in Jalan Cemetery. He became the only Westerner in Chinese history to be granted a posthumous name by the emperor. In 1692 came the Kangxi Emperor's Edict of Toleration that said, quote, The Europeans are very quiet. They do not excite any disturbances in the provinces. They do no harm to anyone, they commit no crimes, and their doctrine has nothing in common with that of the false sects in the empire, nor has it any tendency to excite sedition. We decide, therefore, that all temples dedicated to the Christian God in whatever place they may be found ought to be preserved, and that it may be permitted to all who wish to worship this God to enter these temples, offer him incense, and perform the ceremonies practiced according to ancient custom by the Christians. Therefore, let no one henceforth offer them any opposition. I'm sure Matteo Ricci, Adam Schall, and Ferdinand Verbeest were all smiling in heaven. From about 1600 until their total suppression in 1773, the Jesuits were practically the only source in all of China for knowledge about Western advances in astronomy, geometry, and trigonometry. Because all of these men were viewed as men of higher learning and that they appeared civilized in every way and knew the social customs in China, they were embraced by those Chinese who came into contact with them. They served as the role models for all who followed, showing how to bridge the two cultures of China and the West. They served all their lives in China as bridges between these two parts of the world. And all those who followed, such as Sir Robert Hart, who we covered in CHP episode 58, could look to these 16th and 17th century Jesuits and see how effective they could be in China by embracing Chinese culture rather than by fighting or rejecting it. Adam Shaw and Sir Robert Hart, interestingly, both served about 47, 48 years in China. Later, everything fell apart, and all the groundbreaking achievements of the Jesuits up until this time died with a papal decree from Pope Clement XI. The Chinese rights controversy was now in full swing by the turn of the century, 1700. The Orthodox forces in Rome had always fought against the ways used in the Chinese mission to, you know, allow for some Chinese sensibilities to manifest themselves in the Catholic faith practiced by the locals. Finally, it all came down to three main issues. The conservatives, led by the Dominicans and Franciscans, put their foot down and said, first, the Chinese word for God should be Tianzhu. 
the Chinese didn't like this word selection. And so the Jesuits said it you know, had been okay to use the more acceptable word of Tian, you know, meaning heaven, or the word Shangdi, meaning lord of above or supreme emperor. That was, you know, acceptable to the Chinese. Chinese Catholics also could no longer participate in any of the Confucian rites. They had to give this up. And lastly, the Dominicans and Franciscans said there could be no more ancestor worship. And there was zero wiggle room for any of this. The Chinese Catholics had to take it all or take nothing. No matter how hard the Jesuits tried to plead their case, arguing that these were you know, minor points and simply social ceremonies practiced by the Chinese, it all fell on deaf ears. In January 1707, Pope Clement XI's legate presented this prohibition to the Kangxi Emperor, basically saying there was no room in Catholicism for adapting it for Chinese customs and traditions. Therefore, Kangxi issued his own decree in 1721 in response to what Pope Clement issued that said, quote, Reading this proclamation, I have concluded that the Westerners are petty indeed. It is impossible to reason with them because they do not understand the larger issues as we understand them in China. There is not a single Westerner versed in Chinese works, and their remarks are often incredible and ridiculous. To judge from this proclamation, their religion is no different from other small, bigoted sects of Buddhism or Taoism. I have never seen a document which contains so much nonsense. From now on, Westerners should not be allowed to preach in China to avoid further trouble. And that, my friends, was that. In 1742, Pope Benedict XIV issued a decree that lasted until 1938, and it left no room for any Chinese adaptations of the Catholic faith. It was what it was, and you took it all or you took nothing. 1772, Pope Clement XIV dissolved the Society of Jesus, and this golden period of cultural, religious, and scientific cooperation between the Chinese and the Jesuits came to an end. This falling out didn't cause the end of Christianity in China. We're all familiar with the trials and tribulations of the missionaries of the 19th and 20th centuries. During the Boxer Rebellion in 1900, the graves of the Jesuit missionaries at Jalan Cemetery were all desecrated and the bones of all these holy men scattered and disrespected by the Boxers. When it was all over, everything was sort of put back together until 1967, when during the heat of the Cultural Revolution, the Jalan Cemetery once again faced the madness and mayhem of the student Red Guards. There's an old story that tells of the day the Red Guard leaders visited Jalan Cemetery and ordered that these three stone steles that mark the graves of Ricci, Shawl, and Verbaste be smashed and destroyed, or else... The authorities back then who ran the cemetery, they, they ran for cover, and they asked for guidance from the Beijing Party Committee, you know, what to do in this matter. Zhou Enlai, he had been able to use his pull to save a lot of things, but he wasn't able to do anything in this case. So the Red Guards, you know, they had warned, said, you better smash these graves or else when we come back in three days, you know, we're going to smash your heads or, you know, something. By another miracle, perhaps... The authorities at Jalan Cemetery were somehow able to create a ruse whereby they got the Red Guards to sign off on simply digging three deep holes in the ground and burying these tablets. 
they miraculously agreed, and this is exactly what was done until the Cultural Revolution was over, and then it was safe to, you know, dig them out of the ground and restore everything to how it was. You could go visit this cemetery today, still in Beijing, and all you amazing expats in China speaking such beautiful Mandarin and other dialects, stop a moment and think about these three guys, as well as other Jesuits, who were the earliest collaborators and scholars of the language. It was their early work that served as the foundation from which so much of the study of Mandarin has been built. So the next time you open up your Plico app on your iPhone or iPad or peruse whatever Chinese textbooks, dictionaries, or whatnot, take a moment and think of Ricci, Shawl, and Verbeest. When you look at a beautiful and magnificent structure, you never get to see the foundation, but everything above ground rests on that foundation. And that's where I'm going to put the bookmark in. This is a very courageous and amazing story, and what these three guys did in unlocking the door to this elegant and magnificent language and making it accessible for all those who followed is, you know, really a great story. And it wasn't just these three men. There were many other priests, missionaries, men of God. This episode was simply an overview of the times. And by introducing these men, I hope I was able to give you a little taste of what this time was all about. I bought uh, Jonathan Spence's The Memory Palace of Matteo Ricci with the intention to include that into today's episode as well, but this is going to have to be a future standalone podcast on its own, so I'll hold that for another day. We'll do number 99 next time. Already got that topic selected. And then for my 100th episode, I'll upload that one-hour chat-a-thon with Mr. Ray Harris Jr., the History of World War II podcast that we recorded when we were together here in Claremont during the uh, Labor Day weekend. Ray, by the way, has the uh, History of World War II podcast uh, in the app form. It's only available in the iTunes store, but go check that out if you like that podcast. Who doesn't? This one ran way long. Sorry about that. Every now and then this happens. You sort of get two podcasts for the price of one. This is Laszlo Montgomery of the China History Podcast wishing you all the very best all the time. Join me next week, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.